Good morning, or good evening, whenever you happen to be tuning in. I'm Danny Massey, and uh, I thank you for being a part of our virtual congregation out there, whether you're a member of this church or not. We will welcome you to these services each and every week, and if we can assist you or help you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You may notice that uh, as we proceed from week to week, we are making some tweaks and changes in how we worship, and uh, we're experimenting with a lot of things. I think that's a good thing to do. It will certainly influence us, even when we're all able to get back together again, and we hope that will be sooner than later. But worship right now uh, in this COVID-19 time is has a lot of moving parts. It's very fluid, and we are trying to pay attention to the uh, best advice we get from our leaders and our scientists about this uh, virus and how we can control it better and protect one another. Our next lesson uh, it comes from the book of Revelation, which we've been looking at now for three weeks and we will continue to look at. We're, we're doing a series of sermons on the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor found in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Strange and cryptic often puzzling portion of scripture, uh, John of Patmos is on exile on the little island of Pat Patmos in the Aegean Sea uh, because of his faith in Christ. And he's been exiled uh, there and he has this vision of the risen Christ coming to him and directing him to send specific messages to seven of the major churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And he has specific instructions for each church, but each church will hear the letters that are being dictated, read to all the churches. This is an old um, road in present-day Turkey uh, in the Roman province of Asia at the time. And these seven cities were the most popular cities, the most influential in Asia Minor at that time. So if you look on a biblical map or even a present-day map of Turkey, if you can locate the contemporary cities, they're not called the same today, but um, you can see it's a circular road and uh, the letters proceed from one to the next. Starting at Ephesus, and the message to the ch church at Ephesus was hey, you're doing many good things. You have great ethics. Uh, your beliefs are sound. What, what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus and to the church in every age, I think, but uh, your love is not what it was at first. Your love is waning. And so despite the good works and the sound doctrines, you need to focus on your love. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is what ultimately matters. And I think it matters most to Jesus for his church. It's not surprising that this should be the first message because I think it's not only first in terms of time, it's first probably in terms of importance. If you do everything you do in the church, in the community, those good things, those helpful things to one another, and yet they're not motivated by love, your love for God, your love for neighbor, then it's just so much noise and distraction, a clanging symbol. So uh, let love be most important. And so focus on the love that you, that you should have for your God and for your neighbor. That was the message to Ephesus. And then we move up the road a bit, going north, and we come to uh, Smyrna. Smyrna, some people pronounce it. And the message here is not only should you love fervently, but you must be prepared not only to love, but to suffer if called upon to do so. Now, that was a message we don't want to hear, don't like to hear. But it's still as relevant today as it was in the first century. 
Because if you make a commitment to Jesus Christ as both your Lord and your Savior, then you're going to find yourselves at odds with the culture in which you're living. And I don't care if it's first century culture in Rome or 21st century culture in America, you're going to be at odds and you may have to suffer in some way. Now, most of us in our lifetime will not have to suffer the loss of our life, as was the case in Smyrna and in these other cities that we're going to see. In order to profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, some of them were martyred, persecuted, to be sure. Um, maybe the suffering we may most experience is Christians in our culture is that we may lose our popularity or our influence or our prestige or maybe even a job overtaking a stand for something we sincerely believe based on the teachings of God and his word and the example and the witness of his son. So if you take that seriously, then your faith is going to cost you something. Um, and it will have meaning for you. God can use that suffering that we go through <clears throat> in order to strengthen us and to be a witness to other people. The truth of the matter is that if our faith doesn't really cost us something, it probably doesn't mean very much to us. So just be prepared. If you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you ultimately in some way. So that was the message of Smyrna. Today we come to the message of the church in Pergamum. So let us listen to the reading of, uh, from chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication, that is, sex outside of marriage. <clears throat> so you also have some who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So, we look this morning at uh, Pergamum. We know thus far, in terms of what Christ expects of the church, and that trumps everything else, doesn't it? We bear Christ's name as a part of the church of Christ. And so Christ is the one who, as the head, ought to give us direction and focus and instructions, our marching orders, if you will. So we've learned thus far from the letter to Ephesus that we are to be prepared to love, to love fervently. 
And if we're not loving as fervently as we did when we first came to faith, then we need to think about that. Why has that love faded? What are we doing now that we weren't doing then? What, what are we not doing now that we were doing then? Maybe that will help us to figure out why our love has waned in some way. So be prepared to love. And secondly, be prepared to sacrifice if necessary. I don't think John or the teaching of Christ here is that we necessarily suffer, that we have to suffer, but inevitably we suffer in some way, shape, or form. That's always been the case. And because of that, the church, wherever it exists, in any culture, in any country, is often faced with challenges as to how God's people will respond to issues in society, to issues in life, and will we give credence and authority to the Word of God and to the example and the witness of Jesus Christ, or will we pay more attention to what our political party says or what benefits us personally or what helps us defeat our enemies in some way? What the message is to Pergamum is that you have to embrace the truth. Don't give up holding on the truth. And that is the truth of God that comes to us primarily through the Word of God, that two-edged sword, and through the words and the witness of Jesus. Jesus speaks here of the sword of his mouth. So the example of Jesus, the witness of Jesus, the teaching of God's Word, are to be our authority in matters of faith and practice, in matters of what we are to believe as Christians and how we are to live as Christians. This letter to Pergamum is uh, one of the longer and one of the most mysterious. There's a lot that we won't have time to look at today in this letter, but I encourage you to investigate it, look at the commentaries, and see how else else this particular letter may appear to you. Note that we've already been told in in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus knows these churches well. He walks among the lampstands. The lampstands stand for the uh, each of those congregations he walks among them he knows he's not giving them these directions because this is based on conjecture or curiosity or even gossip but he knows these churches and he knows where they're faithful and where they're being faithless and so he has a specific message to each of them and what does he know about Pergamum this is what he knows he knows that their very location is a danger and a threat Because as he says here, Pergamon was where Satan has his throne. Now that's an awesome thing to say. What does he mean by that? Well, Pergamon was not the metropolis that Ephesus was. It wasn't the glory of Asia as was Smyrna. But what Pergamon was, was the capital, the seat of government for the Roman province of Asia. And before Rome... Even under the Seleucid Empire, Pergamum was the capital then too. So it had always been, or in recent centuries, the capital city. And because of that, it gave to it a particular importance. That was its claim to fame, but that was also the reason for its shame. This was the political and the religious center of emperor worship in that part of the Roman world. When Greece ruled that part of the world, the same was true then. Even on Alexander the Great, after Alexander the Great, when the empire was divided among his four generals, uh, it was Pergamum that was the seat of giving adoration and worship to the gods of Greece. And there were these massive temples there. 
beautiful structures that you could see from 15 miles away at the coast of the Aegean Sea because right there in Pergamon was a cone-shaped hill and all of these massive temples and altars were built on these on this hill and from a distance it actually looked like a throne it's probably why John refers to it as the throne of Satan all these worship practices of these foreign gods there was a, a, a temple there too and an altar to Zeus the chief of the gods in Greek culture also a temple to Athena the goddess of wisdom but most closely identified with Pergamum was a temple to Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And so many people from that region would flock to Pergamum for healing, for medical uh, treatment. It was where physicians of that age were trained in Pergamum. It was something like the Lourdes of its day. That's where people would go and hope to be healing or get treatment. A title for Asclepius in Pergamum was Asclepius Soter, which translates Asclepius the Savior. And so you can imagine how offensive this was to people of faith who believed that Jesus was the only and the single Savior, not Asclepius, despite the fact that you may have some kind of physical healing. And this offended uh, the people of God, the followers of Christ, all of these gods, Zeus, Athena, and others, but Asclepius as well, certainly was not the Savior and shouldn't be given the ultimate commitment of one's life and efforts. Um, I learned just last evening in visiting with some members of the church something I didn't even know about previously. They knew I was going to be preaching on Pergamum and asked me if I'd ever been to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. And I had not. It is the most fascinating thing. Just go online to Pergamum Museum, Berlin, and you can do a virtual walkthrough of this temple that was in Pergamum. One of the sultans, after the Germans built the railroads uh, in Turkey prior to World War I, one of the sultans gave this temple to the Germans. And they reconstructed and made this massive, beautiful museum in the 1950s I think it was built but you can go online and see the wonder and the majesty and the uh, magnificence and the size of one of the temples that was there in Pergamum it's a remarkable thing to see but of course the Christians didn't give much credence or um, credit to any of these so-called gods of the Greeks or the Romans they knew that they were merely man-made inventions and nuisances but not really gods but there was a god of a sort that was taken very seriously in Pergamum more so than Zeus and Athena and Asclepius and that was the Caesar in 29 BC Pergamon was given permission to build a temple to a living Caesar Caesar Augustus the same Caesar we read about in the Christmas story that says uh, an edict went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. That same Caesar, while he was living, there was a temple built for him. And this was where emperor worship was conducted. A bust of Caesar would be placed on a, on a pedestal. 
a sacred fire would be lit, lit next to it. And the citizens of the realm were expected to come and put some incense on the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. It was an act of patriotism. It was also an act of worship and giving lordship to Caesar, not to Jesus Christ. Well, you can imagine how that offended the Christians and how many of them faithfully refused to do so at the threat of their life. And some of them lost their lives. One, one is mentioned Antipas, who is largely considered the first Christian martyr in Asia after the expansion of the Christian church. Uh, but the, the story is that he was put in a bronze kettle and roasted alive for his obedience and allegiance to Jesus Christ. But how could a Christian in good conscience say that Caesar is Lord? Jesus had said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to, to God what is God's, but Caesar cannot claim what rightfully, rightfully belongs to God alone. That obedience, that allegiance should be given and reserved for Christ. And certainly it is a satanic thing either to deny the lordship of Jesus or to assign that lordship to some other entity. Be it the emperor, the Caesar, the president, the party, the profession, whatever challenges the lordship of Christ in your own life. And yet while the church is praised for those who remain faithful, even at the cost of their lives, Jesus also has a complaint against Pergamum. Apparently, there are some in the church of Pergamum who are giving credence to these false teachings of Balaam and Nicolaus, the Nicolaitans, they are called. And the Nicolaitans came up in a previous letter. They'll come up again later. But what these people were teaching was contrary to the word of God, misrepresented the truth of God, and damaged the witness of the people of God. Who these Balaamites and Nicolaitans were exactly, we're not really that sure. It's a lot of conjecture here because the only references we have to them are in Scripture. There's no secular literature at the time that tells us anything about them that's reliable. And yet we know that what they were teaching and promoting was contrary to the Word of God and the truth of God as rightly understood. We are given some indication of the results of their teaching or the influence of it. Um, they supported eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now that was often the bringing of meat animals to sacrifice to these gods once that sacrifice was made the meat was retained and sold in the markets and so you could buy it and some Christians said well it's just we don't believe in any of this uh, idolatry stuff any of these gods so it's still meat that can be used so we will eat it but that was contrary to the will of God and contrary to the will of the church as well when the church began to move out into the Gentile world, and you can read about this in the 15th chapter of Acts at the Jerusalem Council, they were wondering how can we bring Gentiles, convert them and bring them into the church when most of those who had initially responded to the gospel were Hebrews, they were Jewish people. 
And so, so as not to offend the Jews that already had made their commitment to Christ, they came up with a compromise. And what the apostles approved, they all gathered together in Jerusalem, Acts 15. They discussed the pros and cons of how they should reach out, how much freedom should the people of God have, because it was suggested by some that in order to be a Christian, you first had to go through the rites of Judaism, even circumcision. And once you went through the rites of uh, Judaism and became a good Jew, then you could move on and embrace Christ and become a part of, of the church as well. And this was done so as to not necessarily offend Jewish Christians. And so what the council and its wisdom decided was, what, this is what we would ask of you Gentiles who are converting. We want you not to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols because that offends some of the Jews among us. Uh, we want you to not eat meat that has come from an animal that had been strangled so that the blood is still in the system because that would uh, violate kosher rules for what you should eat. And we want you to protect the marriage bed. No fornication. And that was popular in both uh, Roman and Greek culture. No boundaries for sexual uh, activity among men and women. No respect for the commitment of marriage. And so the, the apostles advised this as the church moved out into the Gentile world. But some thought, well, no, I'm a Christian. I'm free. I don't have to recognize the ceremonial law anymore. I don't have to give credence to all these rules and regulations. I'm free in Christ. I can do what I want. It's kind of like, uh, do you wear a face mask? Do you wear a face mask if it's going to protect your neighbor? For the good of your neighbor, you do it, not for your own sake. And some of these people were saying, oh, it violates my freedom. I can eat meat offered to idols if I want to. I'm free to. I can still uh, be a Christian and do that. But it didn't serve the larger community. It didn't serve the common good. And so it was inappropriate. As for the Nicolaitans... If you look in chapter 6, you'll see where the church appointed seven people to become the first deacons of the church. And one of them was a man named Nicolaus. Is it the same Nicolaus <coughs> that was behind the, the heresy of the Nicolaitans, whatever that was? We don't know. Same name. But we just don't know. Many things we don't know here. But apparently the, the grievous offenses of the uh, Balaamites and the Nicolaitans who are believed to be related was that they led people astray morally and doctrinally and so they were giving up their commitment to the truth of God as revealed in his scriptures and in his son Jesus Christ obviously um, tolerance is important we don't always have the same understanding of what the truth is or what is the essential truths and what are the marginal truths. That's always been the case for the people of God going back to their founding. But we have to admit there is a truth and that needs to be sought and valued and embraced. Truth matters. It matters to Jesus. It ought to matter to those who follow Jesus. We live now in a culture where truth is simply a matter of opinion. What do you believe? What do you believe? 
And morality is a matter of choice. This is what I choose to do and believe. But there is a truth and a morality that exists beyond our preference or our opinions. And being committed to that, as we can discern it and embrace it, is critically important for the church of Jesus Christ in any time and in any season. But we have our debates. How do we understand this truth? How do we apply it? Truth can be a weapon. You can use truth to injure someone. That's why truth has to be balanced with love. That's why Paul wrote, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ who is our head. So you have to use the truth and embrace the truth in a manner that is loving toward other people. I read just this past week a statement by Warren Wisby saying that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. So not being brutal and not being hypocritical, how are we committed to the truth as we understand it? Through that sharp two-edged sword and through the sword of our Lord's mouth. According to uh, John Stott in his book on Revelation, Rupert Mendenius was a 17th century Lutheran pastor and he wrote something that has become very uh, popular in contemporary Christian society. It's even the motto of another Presbyterian church. And it says, we must preserve unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and charity in all things, or love in all things. Now, that's a great statement. I embrace it myself. The, the problem with it, is, of course, is how do you determine what is essential and what is not? We don't always, as Christians, agree on that, but we continue to struggle with it as we should. But this much we do know without fail. The church of Jesus Christ, be it in first century Roman culture and first 20 or 21st century U.S. culture, nothing is more important than the profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Savior too, but Lord and Savior. A lot of people want Jesus to be their Savior, but they're not willing for Jesus to be their Lord. That is the authority and the director of their lives, their beliefs, and their habits. And the promise contained in this letter is that if we're faithful, if we are committed to the truth as we best understand it and try to apply it in our own lives, then we will be nourished by the real manna. I think this is just another way of saying that we will feed on the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. He calls himself the bread of life. As... The Israelites were fed by the manna in the wilderness. We feed on Jesus Christ, the bread of life. It says the hidden manna. There's an old belief that the part of the manna that fell in the wilderness was preserved and put in the Ark of the Covenant along with the rod of Aaron and with the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And, of course, that Ark has been misplaced or lost. We don't have access to it anymore. Did it contain some of the manna? I find that hard to believe because the manna was supposed to deteriorate after one day, so I don't know how it could be preserved and put in an ark and kept. But there was a belief also that the ark had been hidden. So it was Jesus saying, from this hidden manna that you th talk about from time to time, you're going to be fed with living manna, the bread of life. 
Also, you'll be given a white stone. There's not time to go into that, but I think that's just a, a way of saying, metaphorically, that you will be declared not guilty by God, that you will be justified. Sometimes a judge would use a white stone to indis- indicate um, not guilty and a darker stone to indicate guilty in a judgment. A white stone was also sometimes used as a, a ticket of entrance into um, a special event. They didn't have tickets like we have paper tickets, but you would be given a stone painted, maybe even with your name on it, and that would entitle you to admission to a banquet or a game or an event of some sort. And so this may be a way of saying if you remain faithful and true to the word as you understand it, to Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you will have admission into the heavenly banquet. Now, before I leave this lesson, there's a derivative lesson I think we can find in it that applies to us having just celebrated our Independence Day yesterday because I think there's a message here that applies to the nation as well as to the church, especially any nation that is a democratic, a free society, and one like ours that was founded on principles from our Judeo-Christian tradition some of which we've honored more faithfully than others, no doubt. But Jesus said to his disciples on one occasion, he said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? It will make you free. There is no freedom apart from truth. And I believe Jesus was not just speaking of spiritual freedom here. I think he is saying something that applies to political freedom as well. Are we a people who are committed to the truth? Are we willing to look at the truth? The truth of our own lives? The truth of our own history? The truth of how we have benefited or paid a price because of commitment to that truth? Are we willing to look at that and be honest? Can we speak the truth to ourselves first? And then are we willing to speak the truth to our neighbor? Spencer Johnson has written, just found this quote this week, Integrity is telling the truth to myself. Honesty is telling the truth to other people. Are we in America willing to be honest about the truth of our past failures, our past injustices, our past crimes in order to move forward? If you can't deal with the truth, you'll never be in a position to make any kind of headway or progress as people of honor and faith. And when we are focused so much these days on reconciliation, how do we reconcile the competing groups in our own society today? There's no way you can have reconciliation if you're not willing to deal with the truth. If you want to be reconciled to God, then you have to fess up to the truth about yourself, that who you are as a sinful human being and how you have offended God and neighbor. That is a requirement to be reconciled to God. If you're alienated from your spouse, you can't be reconciled if you won't look at the truth of what you have done or failed to do as a spouse. We need to be committed to the truth because apart from a commitment to the truth, we will have ultimately no freedom and no reconciliation. So we must demand the truth of one another 
of our institutions in this country, of our leaders within this country, if we're incapable or unwilling to speak the truth, then there's little hope for us to continue as an effective society, a free society. If the church of Jesus Christ needs the truth in order to be effective and in order to have a future, how much more would a secular country be dependent upon telling and being committed to the truth? For a church, for a nation, for any of us, the truth must matter. That's the message to Pergamum from Jesus through John, and that's the message for us in this congregation and in whatever congregation you're a part of, wherever you're listening. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.